Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11, verses 33 to 36. We're finally coming to the end of the book of Romans. We've been in it for probably a couple months now, it seems like. It's been a while. Uh, several messages out of this book. We've been looking at kind of the topic where it starts off talking about has God forsaken his people, referring to Israel, and built upon this. And as we've gone through the study of the book of Romans, you, um, you know, ever, you know, we kind of keep in mind that that good doctrine, and that's what the book of Romans is, it's really a, a, a book of doctrine, and, and, and it starts right off with some very heavy doctrines, doesn't it? And the hermardiology, we've looked at that, that's the study of sin, the lostness of man, you know, you could throw that under there, and uh, we've looked at the, the term justification, and how we are declared righteous through faith in Jesus Christ, by, by his work that is a finished work. We've looked at um, aspects of those things as we've gone through it we've looked at how it's a universal call that goes out romans 10 we were looking at whosoever calls upon the name of the lord shall be saved it is god's desire that people be saved and then we've looked in romans 11 here at um has god cast off his people referring to the um the nation of israel specifically and paul calls a number of people sort of to the legal stand and and he presents a case why that is not true. God absolutely not has he has not cast off his people, and uh, we've looked at that for several weeks. In that we come to the end of this section though, and and it's like Paul pauses and this belief that he's laid out this whole system. He just stops and he he gives a doxology, a praise, and really they uh, many people have said this section of Romans eleven, the end of this chapter, it's a doxology of theology. Uh, it's as if, you know, it, he just stops and he shouts hallelujah in the middle of things, you know. And then we go into chapter 12 and on and we look at the sanctification of the believer. How our doctrine should connect to our life. And uh, in, in the study of scripture, that it always should be that way. It should be relevant to us, you know, as people. That's what God gave his word for. And two, he gave them to us. And good theology should bring about a good view of God and good living in the sense of how we ought to live for the Lord. And I, I really believe that. And uh, that's important as we get that belief system straight. Well, we come to Romans chapter 11, verse 33, and I want to read down here through these verses. Paul says this, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him, and it shall be repaid to him? For of him, and through him, and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we open up your word again tonight, thanking you for it. Thanking you, O Lord, for giving us uh, your revelation, specific revelation, to show us the big things a highway that was clear and plain. And we thank you for Christ, our Savior, the Lord of glory. And we ask now as we open up your word tonight, it would be for your glory and your honor, as only do. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We look at this section, and uh, there's a number of things here, but there's some interesting verses found here. And, and Paul uh, begins talking about the, the wealth of wisdom that the Lord has. And I think all of us have already kind of contemplated that at one time or another, but the scripture is full of verses like that that reveal to us that God is far bigger and greater than we are. 
And the word awesome comes to mind. And that's a word that maybe it's not used as much as it used to be, but it was used very casually for a while. Everything seemed like it was awesome and people would talk about that. But it's a word really reserved for God. And it means to be filled with awe as if you were to look at him, see him, study him, whatever. You would just stop and have to just go, wow. And that's what God's like. He is bigger and greater and more powerful than we could ever imagine. And there's a lot of things that certainly we don't know. Many, many things. Because we, we just scratch the surface. Even studying the book of Romans for probably a year or so it's going to take to go through this book. You, you only scratch the, the surface of what God is really like. And yet he's revealed some very deep things to us, hasn't he? In the book of Deuteronomy, it says this in Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. What he's writing there, and, and that verse continues, talking about the specific things, the, the law of God, he's revealed to the children of man. But the secret things, that, in other words, there's things about God that we'll never know, at least not here. I, I don't think even in eternity you could ever learn all the things that are about to God. Even if you learn something new every second about God, you would never exhaust the wealth of the riches of the wisdom of God because he's already been forever. Get that? Eternally. And we will certainly know a lot more someday uh, than we do now. At least I hope so, right? The scripture reveals that, that we will. But to even, even our eternal destiny from here on out will just scratch the surface of what God is really like. There's many things. When he says secret things, not because God is, is hiding them from us, like all, you know, you guys can't see it. You can't. There's probably things we couldn't handle, that's for sure. You think things blow your mind now, and you would really imagine knowing all that God knew. And yet, isn't that the promise that Satan came along with to Adam and Eve? And he said, in the day you eat thereof, you'll be as gods, knowing good and evil. There was a promise that somehow you might know that. What, what a foolish thing to think and say. And yet it is really where man has come so far. And I was listening to a conversation on the radio the other day, ham radio, and um, a group of men, and they're all uh, in their retired years and stuff, and we were talking about some good topics. They always have great topics, and we were going back and forth on things and, and talking about the, the universe and, and, and uh, you know, all kinds of different things about science and all that. And, I, and I, it's hard to get into there and interject things, but in the midst of that, there, there's very little bit. And one of the guys said this. He says, this is another thing I want to ask God someday. And I thought, boy, he's got a good idea. Because <laughs> God is the one who has the answer to that, and we don't. We can talk about it all day here, and it won't. you'll not come up with probably even the beginning of that. But there's a lot of things we do know through natural revelation, but also through specific revelation. When we study the, uh, the earth and the cosmos and everything around us uh, in the natural world, uh, that's revelation from God. And it should coincide with his specific revelation that he's given us, which is the Bible. And you come to this and you find that, you know, that's what it's about. But there are three facts about God that you find here in the opening verse of uh, uh, 11, verses 11, or chapter 11, verse 33. Paul says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. It's a statement, it's emphatic. You see the exclamation mark there in the English. And that's what he's saying. He just stops and he says, wow, look how big God is. And, of course, Scripture bears record of that over and over again. But number one, there, there are things that, first of all, God knows everything there is to know. You have to understand that he knows everything. I mean everything. There's not one thing that God doesn't know. I, I can't even imagine even coming close to something like that. You know, there are people out there who are experts in their field. 
and yet there's really never a true expert in their field because there's always things we lo- we learn more, right? Uh, there's no, I know, and I've never met anybody that has said, yeah, I've, I've learned everything I could ever know about whatever, furniture making, okay? Well, there's always new techniques. There's new woods that come up. There's new products. There's new ways of doing, the, you know, things like that. There are people that are far more gifted than I'll ever be in that realm and know far more than I could even begin to know. But they're not, they don't know everything. And the Lord does. He knows how everything is kept and put together and held together and how everything fits in its place perfectly. And he puts it in its place perfectly. He's that way. And when Paul says, oh, the depth of the riches of both the wisdom and the knowledge of God, he he is He's making that point, the exclamation. We were singing that song earlier, and I, the reason I wanted to sing that, and I know it's kind of like, a, almost has a dirge sound to it, you know, as it kind of hums along there, but it, it's, it's one of those things that you just stop and you pause. And that first verse says, oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. Do you know that, you know, although we can experience love, we, we don't know really the depth of the love of Christ, the love of God, Except we can't experience it, but we, we don't know it like he knows it. The love that he has for us. Vast, unmeasured, boundless, free, rolling as a mighty ocean in its fullness over me. Wow. He has enough love that he could love me. And why, I don't know. But I do know this, he has enough love for you. He has enough love for every single person. Underneath me, all around me, is the current of his love, leading onward, leading homeward to my glorious rest above. It all points to him. And that's the destiny of the believer, isn't it? He knows everything there is to know. And I think of that because the psalmist got it right. Remember, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. I go to that verse all the time. And as I think of that, you have uh, what a wonderful statement because it means this when you look up and you see the night sky or you look in the day even and see the firmament that's the 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 air above us and all that it all speaks about god people for centuries have said if you look into the heavens you will see the face of god now i don't think you see his literal face and all but what you see is what psalm 19 1 talks about and psalm 19 2 talking about that it their, their words go forth day and night. The heavens is constantly saying, glory be to God who placed me here, who put me here, who did all those things. And it speaks in perfect mathematical precision. And the cosmos points to him. You think about it, the uh, world that we live in, there's a lot of things we know. I'm talking about the world as in the cosmos, the creation that's around us. There's a lot of things that we can observe and that we can know or at least understand in part. And if you think about it, some of the things that we know. For instance, our moon, which is our nearest neighbor uh, to the earth, is about 250,000 miles away. All right? We know its cycle. We know all that. Our sun is about 93 million miles away. That's a long distance, isn't it? And yet in the vastness of space, it's almost nothing. Our solar system, which is comprised of the sun and the nine planets that are made up as planets, is traveling through space at 143 miles per second. The the whole solar system moving through space at 143 miles per second. We know this because we can observe it, and astronomers can can calculate that perfectly. That's why you can launch a rocket from Cape Canaveral, Florida, 
and have it perfectly land somewhere like on Mars or somewhere like that, right? And I mean, over a year later, it lands there and it's right where it's supposed to land most of the time, unless they calculate it wrong. But it's, it's possible, isn't it? It's been done. There are um, about 200 billion stars in our galaxy. That's what they estimate. And, and every visible star, by the way, that you see up there is in our galaxy, the visible stars. You can actually see galaxies that look like stars, but the, the stars themselves that you see with the naked eye, are all they are all part of uh, our own galaxy, the Milky Way. In the Milky Way galaxy of the 200 billion stars, there's about 6 billion that they estimate that have planetary systems like we do. Doesn't mean there's life there, it's just they have planets around them. They can observe that and see that. Every, uh, oh, oh, by the way, Voyager 1, if you were born, you know, before 1977 and in your lifetime in 1977, they launched that Voyager 1 and then Voyager 2. It is uh, today about, if I remember correctly, about 13, it's over 13 billion miles away from Earth. And yet, in all these over now 40 years that it's been out there, it is traveling through space. It travels about 40,000 miles an hour, okay? That's how fast it's going. And it's just now reaching the edge of our solar system. The sun at the edge of our solar system is about one five thousandth, that's five zero zero, all right, zero, right? Five zero zero zero, yeah, five thousandth of the brightness as it is here on Earth at where Voyager is right now. And yet, it still has enough solar energy that it's still radioing back to Earth, its position and a few things. All these years later, you go, wow, that's big. Do you know what? Our solar system, which is made up of all this, it orbits in the center of one of the spiraling wings there of the, of the galaxy, just one of many, you know, out there doing its thing. In our galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy, it's 200 billion stars, all that, is one of about 125 billion star, uh, galaxies out there that they know of. And some have estimated it's probably far higher than that. Uh, we're just discovering more and more. And, and again, you probably find numbers up to 300 or so billion. Andromeda, which is our nearest galaxy, okay, another galaxy entirely, and you can see it in the night sky, is 10 million, million, million miles away. If you could travel at the speed of light, starting right now, it would take you two million light years, or two million years, excuse me, to, um, to get there. It's our nearest neighbor. And yet, Hebrews chapter 11, and I put it in here somewhere, I probably don't even have it here now. I didn't put it in. But in Hebrews chapter 11, the Bible says there in verse 3, that it is, we understand these things that by faith he formed the worlds. Worlds, and the word kind of is a plural like cosmosis. Is such a word? I don't know. There isn't. It's like there could be even more out there. And there, every year, scientists discover that the universe that we thought was this big is actually bigger. And then beyond that is bigger. And yet the Bible says he spanned that in the palm of his hand. <laughs> God's big. So when Paul says, oh, the depth, right? And the, of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. I mean, he's not making an understatement. By the way, Paul didn't have probably all that knowledge that we do today in the, in the realm of things. But he, he knew God. He knew God was far bigger than our little brains that could ever imagine in all of that. 
And I think of that because God is, is bigger. Secondly, he makes plans that we cannot understand. Look at what it says in um, the second part of this verse. says, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Now that's not just saying, oh, I give up and, you know, God knows everything I don't and all that. I mean, certainly there's a lot that he's revealed to us. But understand this, that there's no way to fully understand the mind of God when he makes a decision and he, he's able to do something. Really, he is the one who's the final authority on all that. And his ways are past finding out for man. I can't go to God and say, God, I, I understand why you totally, you did that that way. I mean, I might see some part of that, but I can't even come close to that because that's what Paul says. He says, how unsearchable are his judgments. And the word there is inscrutable, like it's, um, it's beyond human understanding. It's important that we look at the Lord on that. And I think... Uh, I'm, you know, it was John Wesley who put it this way. He, you know, quoting him, he says, "Show me a worm that fully comprehends a man, and I'll show you a man. Show you a man that can comprehend God." I don't know. I never thought about earthworms when I dig them up there in the garden or wherever, and, and say, "I wonder if that worm understands me, understands why I just stuck a shovel down through here and disturbed his world." <laughs> I mean, that's sort of the picture, and I would say it goes far beyond that. <laughs> Uh, the worm knows more about man than we could ever know about God, ever. Thirdly, he alone knows why everything happens. And he says, and his ways past finding out. In other words, there are things that happen that we will never know in this world why exactly it took place. Um, I often bring up the, the, the worldview questions, right? You know, every worldview and in, in, everybody in the worldview, you know, world has certain views of our realm that we live in and every religion every faith every worldview whatever you want to lump it under they always have the the big questions of where do we come from and then why am i here the purpose of why i'm here and the existence of evil and origin of evil where did that come from and destiny where are we going those four questions are are pretty much universal questions and philosophers and theologians and you know Skeptics, everybody alike, they all, they all bring that in and, and try to answer those questions somehow. Sometimes they come up with some funny answers, you know. Groping in darkness, as we've looked at. Ultimately, God's ways are past finding out completely. But he has made certain things very clear. And we can know those things. And those things that he has made clear, we need to be concerned about. I've thought of that because sometimes uh, somebody will give their life to something that's almost, you think, an impossible task. I remember sitting on an airplane one day talking to somebody, and we were talking about, uh, I had witnessed to the person a little bit, told them my testimony, and they said, well, that's really good, but, you know, we're just probably one of, of many, many, many worlds that are out there in the universe. Hmm. In other words, there's life out there somewhere else. Well, you know what? I, I'm not going to argue that because I can't argue what I don't see or know or whatever, and neither can they argue for it. It's one of those things that's whatever, you know, leave it. <laughs> whatever I do know is this, that God has revealed to me things that I should be concerned about. And I can, I can spend the rest of my days chasing around after alien life and miss the biggest thing he ever revealed to us, which is that right now there is a revelation that tells me where I came from, why I'm here, 
where I'm going, why evil has existed, and why, you know, his answer to evil, all that. It's all found in the person of Christ. Which, by the way, in the book of Colossians, it talks about him being the, well, being the wisdom of God, literally. Everything's wrapped up in Christ. By him all things consist. He's the sustainer of all things. All of that goes on. There are things that we cannot understand, and there are judgments or decisions that God makes that we will never understand fully, but we leave it with him. You have to. He alone knows why everything happens. And sometimes we just have to stop and say, okay, Lord, I'll let you do that. A few years ago, a man named Michael Gartner wrote in USA Today about the sudden death of his 17-year-old son, his adopted son, Christopher. Quote, he said this, He died on Thursday. He was a healthy, robust boy on Tuesday. He got sick on Wednesday, and he died on Thursday. Then he said this, You would have liked him. Everyone did. Father and son didn't look alike at all. Michael Gardner is a five foot eight and weighs 160 pounds. Christopher was close to 6'4 and weighed 300 pounds. He looked like a cement block with a grin. <laughs> That's what his dad said. He died of a sudden attack of juvenile diabetes. Despite heroic medical efforts and fervent prayers, Christopher was suddenly gone. It is an awful and horrible and sad, and no words can comfort his four grandparents, his brother and sister, his friends, or his parents. The day after he died, a friend called and said, the only thing helped that helped me get through this terrible tragedy is, if God had come to you 17 years ago and said, I'll make you a bargain, I'll give you a beautiful, wonderful, happy, and healthy kid for 17 years, and then I'm going to take him away. Would you have made that, that decision? He said this. He said, I would have made that deal in a second. And that was the deal. We just didn't know the terms, Michael Gardner said. His right. That's always the deal. We never know the terms in advance. God gives us life, health, happiness, our children, our friends, and says, enjoy it while you can. Someday I will come back for them. And we never know the terms in advance. And you know, that's what Paul is saying here. He's, he's saying his judgments and his ways are past finding out, but they're always right. They're always correct. Well, there's also three things that no one can do. Three things that no one can do. Let's look at this. Verse 34, for who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has known the mind of the Lord? Do you know what? No one can explain God fully. No one. Now, that's not a hopeless situation. You know, I spent, I've spent 25 years of my life here trying to explain to people what God's like, okay? That's not waste. I don't think so anyways. I hope not. But I, I can say this. I, I certainly uh, I can't know God fully, not here. But I will tell you this. Um, he has revealed his mind in some ways, but... For me to spend the next million years, if I could, <laughs> explaining to you what God is like, I still would not get the biggest, really all the details. I couldn't come close. And I mentioned the, the blind men and the elephant, right? You remember the parable there, the blind men who went out, and I, I just used that the other day in the illustration, but, you know, one goes and, and touches the elephant and feels the, the leg and tries to describe the elephant like a tree because the, the, the leg was like a tree, and the other one felt the trunk and thought it was like a, a, a snake maybe and the tail was like a rope and 
and the side of the elephant like a wall. And, you know, they tried to describe this elephant, and yet, how do you really describe an elephant to a blind man? How do you describe God, the infinite God, to someone who's finite and everything around him is always changing, right? How do you do that? You can't fully. No one can counsel God. Verse 34b uh, there, the second part. Or who has become his counselor? Imagine that. Say, I wake up in the morning and say, God, I got some advice for you today. Wow. Now, now God's a big God. He lets us question him, you know? I was talking to my friend Calvin the other day. I told you about Calvin. He's, he's got a brain tumor. Mid-50s, you know, he's facing terminal brain cancer. And I said, how, how you doing? You know, like, how are you doing? He said, well, God, and I've had some discussion about this. I've talked to God and I've said to God, there's a lot better ways you could take me. <laughs> I'd like to choose a different way. But, but he said, and he said this very profoundly, he said, but this is what he's chosen. And, and we prayed together and, and just said, Lord, help him finish well. That's hard. That's hard. I, I, don't, I can't choose what's going to happen to me either. Neither can you. Not fully anyways. I mean, Unless you go out and walk in front of a bus or something, but that's not the right, right way to go, right? No one counsels God. You, you can't stop and just say, you know, why? Lord, I, I'm going to tell you how things should go, right? Lord, you need a counselor of some sort. <laughs> oh, boy. Just scratch your head on that one. And here's another one that you can't do. And if you look at this one, he says, or who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him? And what he's talking about here is that, you know, you can't accuse God of being unfair. Something comes along. By the way, that's a quote from the book of Job in a roundabout way there. Um, in the book of Job 41.11, I think I put it in there. Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. One of the terms that is given to the, you know, God is the word Lord. And we use that word and we associate it with him. But the word itself means master. The Hebrew is Adonai, and it, it means that. It means someone who owns something and is a master of things. So he's ultimately the Lord. He is the owner of all. And when that word was used in feudal times and referred to a man as, as Lord so-and-so, they were saying he's the owner of this land or the owner of this whatever. And, but they really are. You know, they, they're just underlords, I guess, if you put it that way. And that's all we are at anything. If you own a plot of land or a house or anything else, you're just a temporary owner of that here. And ultimately, God owns everything. And ultimately, as owner of everything, he makes the rules. And he's the one that also can do what he wants with it. And yet, he hasn't just abandoned us to ourselves, has he? Not at all. When we made a mess of everything, he said, I'll, I'll come down to where you are and I'll show you a way through Christ, Right? And he put on flesh. He enters into his creation and he becomes part of our world. The only way um, I could understand what a worm thinks like is if I could become a worm. And that's what Christ did. Refers to him as that in the Old Testament, a worm. And I haven't thought of that. Like that, What a humiliating thing. I, uh, but that's what God did. He humbled himself and became obedient even unto death, even the death of the cross. And if you want to see what God's like, then guess what? You better understand, first and foremost, you can't accuse him of being unfair. 
You say, this awful, nasty thing has happened to me in my life. God, you're not fair. And God just has to point to one thing. My son, look what he did. He went to a cross. Before he went to the cross, he entered into humanity. He went through all the things we do. He was tempted in every way as we are, and yet without sin. That's a wonderful thing. Without sin. See, he had to be that way. The only way we could be saved and and to have a Savior, there are three conditions that had to be met in the Savior. Three things that absolutely had to be met. And the first one is this, that he had to be a man. He had to be of our race, uh, humanity. He had to. An angel could not come and save us. The hosts of angels, they, they aren't able to. They're not part of us. He had to be a man. So he shared in our humanity. That's the incarnation, right? We've talked about that. He put on flesh. Secondly, he had to be somehow an infinite man. Because every other man I know, and woman, and whatever, they have a, they have a lifespan. That's it. But he has to be infinite, both directions. That's why when Isaiah prophesied and said uh, that for unto us, uh, the son is given, or a child is born, but the son is given. A child was born at Bethlehem. That was a date in history. But the son of eternity was given on that day. He's always been the son, but he became a baby and a young man and a man and then was crucified, all that. He partook of humanity at a given time. So he had to be a man, but he also had to be an infinite man because ultimately a mere mortal could not pay the price of sin infinitely all right couldn't do it thirdly he might he had to be an innocent man because a sinner could not pay for sin someone innocent had to take on sin so he had to be sinless and by the way those are those are um are doctrines that you have to stay on and cling to because otherwise you have no savior all right if they aren't true and they are true he was God in the flesh, infinite of every you know, sort, the definition that is put there. And he was innocent in the sense that he never sinned. And by the way, there won't be one person in hell who will ever accuse God and say, you weren't fair for putting me here. God, you were unfair. Somehow I ended up here, even though I lived a good life. I was a good person. I, I did many things to help my fellow people out I, I was a good leader maybe uh, maybe I was even a religious leader of some sort prayed with people did many things and how did I end up here God you're unfair won't, ha- won't happen that is not it it's interesting Luke 16 Harry was there this morning in that passage and the dialogue from hell of the rich man who's as he said the greatest evangelist that ever lived because there you know what if, you, if hell could turn loose the, the dead and they would go forth today, they would be the greatest evangelists because they would proclaim the glory of God and the salvation of God. And that man, he didn't, the, the rich man in hell there in Luke 16, he doesn't say, Father Abraham, God is so unfair, he's put me here. No, he cries out for a drop of water. Can you give me some release some here? And he can't, he can't do it. His next request is go tell my, my brethren that they don't come here. Hell does not cry out that God is is unfair. Hell cries out to send someone to tell people that they don't come there. 
that's that's the you know the, the reality of uh, of that. Well, we go on here. Um, the last verse that we look at tonight, the last verse in this chapter, for of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. And then he puts an amen there, as in, let it be, you know. Again, this doxology ends up with a, a, a praise, which is what doxology is, but it points to heaven. And Paul, in the middle of all this dissertation of, of theology, he stops and he says, this is what it's about. It's for the glory of God. Every aspect of it. He, first, he says, he's the source of all things. For of him and through him and to him are all things. You get the direction there? For of him, right? And through him and to him are all things. Everything belongs to him. He's the Lord. And he's the author of all things. He's the originator of things. He's the sustainer of all things. Look what he goes on to say. Uh, and to him are all things. In other words, they, they are continually being. and they, they are, He is the sustainer of things. Um, I've mentioned that before, but J. Vernon McGee, I love his phrase, uh, in reference to Colossians, where it says, um, by him all things consist, and he says he's the super glue of the universe. And it doesn't get much better than that. He's what holds it together. And should God will that it all fly apart, it would fly apart like that. Everything. And yet he doesn't. He's a God of order. And it's really amazing what he does. And he's able to keep us. And it's a good thing because as I think about that, that means in backing up to, uh, to us, these mere mortals that we are, he offers us eternal salvation. He offers us secure eternal salvation. And because he is the sustainer and keeper of all things, and he doesn't change, that means forever you can be saved. Forever. Not because of who we are, but because of what Christ is. He is the one, uh, and to him are all things. And I, I like that. He's the sustainer of everything. And we are just people that need to, um, you know, we, just, we have a small part of that. Samuel Morse, who was the, he's best known for uh, being an inventor in the 1800s, you know, and he invented the telegraph and learned uh, some of the principles of electricity and that you could you could send electricity you know down wires copper wires and long distances and and he came up with uh, what is known as morse code and it's still in use today to this very day morse code and 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 basically you know he was credited with all kinds of great inventions and he was a christian man um, went to the Lord and asked the Lord to give him wisdom in his inventions. And he came up with many, many different inventions, but he's best known for that, the telegraph and our modern communication age that we have today. And, and uh, yet when he was asked about that, he, and asked uh, of the importance in the role that he played, he would always point it back to God and he would say, God is the one who, who keeps and develops electricity and he just chose for some reason to reveal it to me. <laughs> and he put it right back on the Lord and he said, I'm just a small piece in the puzzle. George Washington Carver, best known as the peanut man, right? You know, he learned peanuts. He learned everything about peanuts. He made all kinds of different um, things out of peanuts and, and became uh, world known in that day. But he was the same way. He was a Christian man and often would say, you know, when I would go out and I would ask the Lord to show me the great things of the, the world and, and teach me something great. And the Lord says, you're thinking too big. 
And finally, he said, as I was looking down in the ground, and there I saw a peanut. And he said, the Lord confirmed in my heart, that's what I'm going to show you, the peanut. You know what? Pretty humbling. You know a lot about a peanut, but there's a lot in a peanut, isn't there? Read about George Washington Carver, neat man, all that stuff. But you know what? He's, he's the sustainer of all things, and every now and again, he lets somebody in a little bit on that, coming in on that. And, and by the way, using those illustrations, it's, I'm mindful of this, that it wasn't that long ago that most people in the scientific realm would come to, and it really came out of the enlightened era as in human history, they came from a theistic worldview. They came from, God made everything, and now, God, you show me something. And today, we come from it differently. Most people are kind of like, there is no God, and everything's chaos, and now I'm going to try to sort it. And you wonder where we come up with some great brainy ideas today. And it's just really amazing that people even come up with anything. But really, many, many people that came from things with a theistic worldview. Then lastly on this, he says, to whom be glory forever. Amen. And ultimately, he's the supreme purpose of all things. That's, that's the ultimate thing. Ultimately, he is the reason for everything. And everything that we talked about tonight, everything we've talked about, every breath we've ever taken, it's for him. All right? Through him, in him, being, you know, with that. I love that. He made us for himself and all of creation for him. And when it says all things, he means all things. You think about that. Ray Pritchard, in his uh, section of comments on this, he puts this. God always leaves us with a choice, doesn't he? You can't believe and be saved, or you can, excuse me, you can believe and be saved, or you can doubt and be damned. He says that's really where people go, right? He says, but either way, many of your questions will never be fully answered. If you choose to believe, then we are left with these final words. To him be the glory forever. In life and in death, to him be glory forever. In joy and in sorrow, to him be the glory forever. In good days and dark nights, to him be the glory forever. In sickness and in health, to him be the glory forever. In the in your career and in your home, to him be the glory forever. In your marriage and in your children, to him be the glory forever. In your prosperity and in your poverty, to him be the glory forever. In days of peace and in times of war, to him be the glory forever. In gentle breeze and in gathering storm, to him be the glory forever. In the classroom and in the boardroom, to him be the glory forever. In moments of victory and in darkest defeat, to him be the glory forever. In prayers answered and in prayers unanswered, to him be the glory forever. In yesterday's tears, today's rejoicing, and tomorrow's adventures, to him be the glory forever. And then he says, in heaven and on earth, to him be the glory forever. And you really, that's all, that little phrase, if you get nothing from this message except to him be glory forever, you know, cling to that. Because whatever you face tonight, tomorrow, right now, whatever, you know what? It's for him. Father, we thank you for the word of God. We thank you for these words penned so many years ago, but so, I think, relevant for right now and forever. And we commit it to you, and we do echo what Paul said here to whom be glory forever. Amen. In Jesus' name, amen.